Today on the Almond Journey podcast. Farming's nothing but ups and downs. Just when you think things are good, <laughs> things change, just like right now. Almonds have always been good to me, and I think they'll be good in the future, but there's a lot of things to work on. Dick Cunningham shares lessons and insights from over 50 years of working in the almond industry. Welcome back to the Almond Journey podcast brought to you by the Almond Board of California. On this show, we discover how growers and handlers and other stakeholders are making things work in their operations to drive the almond industry forward. I'm your host, Tim Hammerich, and I'm traveling up and down the valley to feature the leaders who are finding innovative ways to improve their operations, connect with their local communities, and advance this almond industry. Today, we head to Houston, California, to visit with Dick Cunningham of Cunningham Ranch Incorporated. Dick has a long history in the almond business as a grower and holer sheller. His father started their holer sheller operation in the 1960s. And after spending his career as a grower and holer sheller himself, he recently leased that operation out. He remains an active member of the Almond Alliance Board of Directors, where he currently serves as the chair of their PAC committee. Dick and I had a chance to sit down at the Almond Conference 2022 in Sacramento last December and really enjoyed this conversation. He has decades of lived experience in the almond industry to share, so we focus a lot of today's episode on his journey, the ups and downs he's experienced over the years, the current challenges growers are facing in 2023, and his outlook for the future. Enjoy this interview with Dick Cunningham. My dad's family came from Arkansas. My grandfather was a sharecropper back there, and he left during the Dust Bowl era, late 30s, and ended up in California and basically became a migrant farm worker back in the day and uh, ended up in the Waterford area, east of Modesto, working on a peach nectarine farm and uh he died when my dad was like 16 they were in a car accident they had been back to visit arkansas on the way back to california got in an accident and uh my grandfather was killed my dad was in the car too he was badly injured but survived along with his mother he had a sister that died as well and i i think a neighbor so anyway, my, uh, my, it was just my dad and his mom living at home then in Modesto. And so uh, he grew up very poor and uh, didn't graduate high school. I think he went to work when he was 18 and ended up working a driving truck. All of my dad's brothers and him, they all were truck drivers by trade. And uh, he ended up working for an egg company delivering eggs. He would drive to the Bay Area and around delivering eggs and I think they were renting a house from some people out in the Houston Denaire area which they ended up buying the house uh, later in the buying the farm a 20 acre farm whatever so he was still working as a truck driver and farming on the side I guess you can say so at some point he decided that the little barn he had out there would be a good spot for an almond sheller so that was in the early 60s that he put that in. And then we moved in 1967 to the, where the huller is located now and built a new one. Uh, at that point, it was a huller, which was the, the way things were done then. Everything was in shell. So that was 67. 
And then uh, I was just a freshman in high school. And so later on, he, uh, I came to work for him. So, and, and so he must've continued to farm as well as do the, he did. Yeah. So when we moved there, there, there was a, a larger ranch that he had bought there. And then he started doing farming on the side for other people, farm management, custom farming kind of stuff. And, uh, so I went to JC to Modesto junior college to, in my mind, play baseball. School was sort of a second thought. And uh, so I played winter league baseball, and then when when that was over with, I decided I was gonna flunk out because I hadn't been going to classes very much. So I said, "Hey, Dad, you got any work?" He said, "Yeah, but you know, you're a low man on the totem pole." So he didn't have a big force then; it was just two or three people. So so I spent the winter pruning and stacking brush and whatever had to be done. And then in the spring, my brother was also a baseball player at MJC and he got a scholarship to Fresno State and so there was two other uh, guys from Houston that wanted to go there too and they needed a fourth to fill out the uh, the apartment or whatever so I'm like hey dad what do you think so I went to Fresno State and spent a year there and at that point I was like school's not for me so um, that summer of course I went back to work for him when I came home for the summer and I knew he needed a uh, a pre-cleaner operator at the huller for the season. And so I said, Dad, I can do that. So I did, and uh, that became my my occupation, I guess, the, you know, besides running the pre-cleaner during the hauling season, then just became a farm worker for him. And uh, that was 1973. And we just kept going on from there. It didn't take me long to, after working for him, it was like, hey, I, I kind of want to do my own thing, you know. So I had another guy who was a couple of years younger than me from Houston who had come to work, I think, three years later. And uh, so we we formed a farming company on our own with my dad. The two of us did all the work ourselves, drove the tractor, did all the spraying, ended up hiring one employee. And uh, we got a contract with a uh, absentee farmer from uh, actually from Hollywood. Anyone we would know? Uh, well, Henry and Michael Jaffe. So Henry Jaffe was the producer of the Dinosaur show for a long time. And then Michael did uh, movies made for television for a long time. So anyway, they bought this ranch. And it's a long story, but they ended up hiring my dad. And so basically it was Alan Little and myself who uh, did the work. And my dad was sort of the guy in the back. And he, he had other things going on, too, besides... The hauler was doing some custom farming for Foster Farms. Foster Farms started planting almonds, and he was their farmer. So, yeah, that's how I got started. That's great. And and how old then were you when you decided to go out on your own like that? Oh, that was 1979. So that would put me at 20, 26 years old. Yeah. And what, I mean, what convinced you that you were ready, you know, that you were ready for that? Or what, what were you thinking at that time? Well, I, I wanted to be my own boss. My dad could probably tell you I was not the best employee we butted heads a lot because, you know, he was old and dumb. And as I found out later, he was a lot smarter than me. But, uh, yeah, you know, it takes a while to figure that out. So, uh, yeah, that I just knew that I wanted to be the boss, so to speak. So um, we started that and started slow. And uh, we had a couple of small clients that we did. And then we just, from that one ranch, the Jaffe's sold that ranch like 18 months later. 
that was 1979. And so in 1981, prices had kind of went up and somebody made them an offer that they couldn't refuse. So he called me one day and said, hey, we sold, sold the ranch. And I'm like, oh, okay. So, you know, we lost our big client and whatever, but then we had made a connection with them. And so they waited a while. Things went kind of bad. Then in the mid-80s, prices really got bad, especially in almonds. So we bought another property south of there with, with him, and we became partners with him. And so that ranch that they sold had been bought by an English family trust. And that kind of fell apart for them. It was managed by I'll just say an unnamed bank that didn't do a very good job. And so they ended up walking away from the ranch. The Jaffees had signed a guarantee on the loan with Northwestern Mutual. So they had to take it back over. So we ended up having the ranch back over and we, we had it until the early 2000s. We finally sold it then. So do you think, you know, obviously a lot has changed over the years, but do you think it's still possible for someone in their mid twenties that, you know, kind of wants to get things going for themselves to, to start building? It is, but it's a lot harder because of the land prices now. And, you know, I mean, everything's more expensive. You know, when we bought that first tractor, it was probably twenty thousand, twenty-five thousand dollars the first new tractor we bought. Now they're, you know, they're pushing a hundred thousand dollars for a, a tractor, uh, a new tractor. And then land is crazy. So yeah, it's all hard. But you know, if somebody's willing to work hard and you've got the right connections, you can make it work. And then you mentioned kind of the 80s being a tough time for almonds. Um, coming out of that, did you continue to expand both on the farm side and on the, the holer sheller side? Yeah. So, um, you know, we were always looking to, to grow carefully with the right people. And then the, the Jaffies, with them, we were always looking to expand. And so, yeah, we we had about 600 acres with them at one point in time, and we were doing a little more farm management. Alan and I were always looking to find a good a good client for that. And so, uh, yeah, we we grew cautiously, and uh, I think it worked out. You know, farming's nothing but ups and downs. Just when you think things are good, <laughs> things change. Just like right now, the price of almonds has dropped to back to where it's kind of below the cost of production for a lot of guys. And, you know, you just have to hang on and do the best you can and wait for the things to change because things always do. You know, here in California, things get overplanted easily. Things are good. Almonds right now, we, we probably have too many acres in the ground, but that'll change. How, how do you think about that, about kind of when when is it time to just hang on and get through versus when it is it time to kind of cut your losses and, and change course? Well, I, you know, I, I never found the time when it was time to, to get out, but there was plenty of times when it was time to hang on and, you know, not do anything crazy. Don't go buy new pickups, new tractors. Uh, don't take that extra vacation or whatever. And, you know, keep your, uh, keep your dollars close by and, and uh, wait for an opportunity for things to get better. How has the, the holding shelling side of the business, how has that changed kind of over the years? So originally when my dad put in that little shelling plant, he was making kernels. Not a lot of people were, and all the big plants were all in-shell. And so when he put in the bigger plant, it was an in-shell plant as well. And then at some point in time with the advent of the shear roller, it became a lot easier to do product that was 
let's say, maybe not as dry as it should be. And so the shearroll enabled them to take the hull off, and so you could take the shell off as well. So it was, I think it was in uh, 1987 or something is when we changed to making kernels again. So that was a that was a big change for us, and yeah, it was the way to go. The the in shell market now just drives me crazy because it's like we got away from making in shell because it was harder, and you know all our equipment was geared towards taking everything off and just having the kernel, and then I did redid the plant in two thousand. My dad was out of the business by then, still involved financially, but not operationally and you know i remodeled things and and uh i gave some thought to do an in-shell and at the last minute i said oh let's put in a little in-shell line because i had one customer that wanted to do in-shell so we did it we did it that year you know it's according to the customer if they want to sell in-shell basis so they didn't want to do it the next year or the next year and then i think the very next year they wanted to do it so we ran it again and then we didn't run it again for three or four years and so i took the line out and you know since then the, there's been an increase in demand for inshell which <laughs> i wish would go away but uh obviously it's not going to go away because some of the largest customers china and india want it in shell why 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 do they want inshell you know i'm not in the processing the marketing side of it but a lot of it is i think culturally they like to crack them open themselves over there so uh it to me it makes no sense to have all the extra shipping cost you know with you're shipping another 25 percent of the weight or, or whatever with the the shell on the kernel and plus you know yeah it's harder to see the quality when they're not cracked out yet and so that you know that's something a grower will say oh, i want to make in shell and 30 years ago growers grew their crop to make in shell. They let them ripen longer, the holes would get open and dry, and you can make in shell out of it. Nowadays, people start shaking when they first pop open, the hole tends to not get open, so it's harder to get them off. And then plus, if you don't have good pest control and the insect damage, you can only have a certain amount of rejects in the in shell. So as a huller sheller, you've got to take a sample of them ahead of time and say, well, yeah, this will make greater. No, these won't. So, and a lot of times they'll make in shell out of it, and then the market changes, or the buyer decides the price wasn't right, and they're already they're already in shell. And so, in order to sell them, the grower has to go ahead and shell them back out again. So, yeah. <laughs> it it drove me crazy. But uh, that that was a big change in the business. You know, going from in shell to just kernels, and then now you got to do both. Right. So, right. Uh, well, we always talk about kind of, you know, the expanding acreage and what that has done to prices for almond growers. What's that do for the economics of, of a holder sheller? I mean, I would imagine it creates a lot more demand, but has has the capacity kept up? And what does it do to kind of the economics of the holder sheller? Well, more is always good for the holder sheller. And, you know, that was one of the reasons my dad decided to put it in is, you know, a, a second source of income for a farmer is always good especially when you only have one crop as he did you know some growers will have multiple crops and so when one's bad maybe the other one's good and you can offset that but the huller sheller you have a constant stream of income when there's more acres planted there's more to be holding shelled it's just that it becomes a uh, 
a competitive business, you know, you're, the ultimate competition for an independent hauler sheller is the co-ops because, you know, they're doing it for the benefit of the, the grower owners or whatever. So you have to be able to compete with them. You have to have a reason that they would want to bring it to you as an independent when you're, you're keeping the profits for yourself. So, you, you know, you have to do it as cheap as you can and still make a, a profit back to yourself to pay for the, all the th- equipment and everything. And how has that changed the dynamic between kind of the holder sheller and the grower? How has that dynamic changed, if at all, over the years? It it hasn't really changed. It's just that back in the day when my when my dad started, you know, the the late '60s, there weren't nearly as many almonds planted, and there weren't nearly as many big growers, especially in our area. Down south, there were in the Kern County area, but in our area, it was just a lot of mom and pop operations, I'll call them, you know. So, you know, you did all your neighbors and you, you know, you try to find a few growers around the area and the foothills near us was just starting to get planted. So, you know, that was where the the big growers started planting acreage. So, you know, then you had to go out and try to try to entice them to bring their product to you. So. Mm And is it still kind of a, you know, kind of one-on-one handshake type uh, business or? It, It always was for me. Yeah. Yeah, there's you know there's a little more corporate involvement now. You have uh, insurance companies owning land and having big farm companies, and so you get into that layer. But for me, it was always a handshake. I had very few contracts over the years. Usually, if, if you had to do a contract with somebody, it wasn't a good thing. <laughs> Now, I understand that at one time you were the chairman of the uh, Almond, is it Holders and Processors Association? Well, now it's the Almond Alliance. Now Almond Alliance, yeah. So can maybe talk about that and then uh, I know it's old news, but kind of like what that looks like today as part of the Almond Alliance. Well, to start with, so my dad was one of the founding members of the original association, which was probably called the Almond Hullers Association or something. I can't remember the exact name, but that was, I think, 1981. And so, uh, yeah, there's been a Cunningham on the board of that association for more years than there hasn't because uh, I was on the board when it was the Hullers and Processors and chairman as well, and as well as the Almond Alliance now. And I remember asking my dad, so what were you guys worried about or working on, you know, when you formed it? And, uh, well, you know, there wasn't really a, a lot of, we just wanted to get together and, you know, be able to talk and everybody to talk about their problems. There wasn't a lot of specific political problems like there are nowadays that they had to work on. So when they originally were just the Almond Hullers Association, at some point they could see it was important to get the processors involved too. They had issues, sometimes they were common issues, and to be able to afford the organization, maybe you needed the processors involved. So that's when they changed to become the Almond Hullers and Processors Association. And then in the last several years, it became apparent that we needed to change our direction because advocacy had become so much more important. We were kind of late to the game to get there. And I think we were at a spot where it was change or die. And so we made the change. And, you know, not everybody was happy. A lot of people were happy with the old... Almond Hullers and Processors Association, what we do, there was a lot of training, a lot of networking, but not a lot of advocacy. So we had a uh, strategic planning session where we involved all members of the industry as well as almond board people. And 
processors, growers, and we all came to the conclusion that this was the direction we needed to go to. And so the Almond Alliance came out of that. And I'm very happy with that decision. We've, uh, we've made a lot of inroads. We're, you know, people know us now in Sacramento and D.C. as well. 20 years ago, nobody really cared about what happened in D.C. They didn't think. But when you become the largest acreage crop in California, as well as the, I think, the third or fourth largest export in the United States crop to be exported, it's important, right? There's things that go on in D.C. that affect us every day. So we have to be involved there. So And now we are. Fantastic. Well, we talked uh, kind of before we started rolling here about about the Almond Conference celebrating 50 years, and that just so happens to be about the amount of time you've been in the almond industry. So you've come to not maybe you said maybe not all of them, but almost all of the, these almond probably almost all of them. Yeah. yeah. What's uh, what stands out as the biggest uh, changes to to this annual event? You know, uh, it was the same thing, just on a much smaller scale. You know, it used to be in Modesto, and uh, it was a lot of growers that would go. It was the one time they could go and get together, you know, it was the off season and, you know, especially if it happened to rain that day, you'd, the farmers would all head in there. But uh, it it's just a lot bigger now. Um, I think it's there's a, a little more information being put out, which is a good thing. And, uh, you know, in those days, the, our association probably wasn't nearly as involved as we are now. And, uh, you know, it's it's just so much more needed than it was then. So there's, it's hard to just when you think things are going well, and then something rears its head. Whether it's a in the trade, a uh, another country wants to put a tariff on us, or you know something that the changes. And uh, so yeah, I, almonds have always been good to me, and I think they'll be good in the future. But there's a lot of things to work on. Absolutely. Well, uh, let's kind of shift gears to the future here a little bit as, as you reflect on, you know, your 50 years in this industry and, and the times that it's gotten difficult for you, but you've held on and kind of got through. Uh, some might argue, you know, we're either in or approaching another time, you know, similar to those times. How do you see that playing out? You know, what are the key drivers that are going to impact where almonds go in the next five to 10 years? Well, you could say that things usually tend to work themselves out, but, um, Sometimes it's through a lot of difficult choices for people. And, you know, right now we have a surplus of product on the market. And, of course, the end users, the buyers, they all know it. And uh, so the only way to change that is to work through it. And, uh, yeah, to me, almonds are on sale right now. And anybody that wants to, that likes to use them, they need to be buying them because uh, it won't buy, be like this forever. But uh, in the meantime... If you're a grower, you got to figure out how to get through it, right? And so uh, that's why, you know, we're at the Almond Alliance, we're diligent in working on anything that can affect or help getting rid of the surplus of almonds that we have right now. So uh, you just got to watch everything, you know, from uh, everybody shipping them to make sure that we can ship them and, you know, things at the end of the market. The Almond Board has been great on market research, developing markets. So uh, it's going to take a while for things to work out, but um, you know we're growing a great product. It's healthy, it's nutritious, um, it's safe. So in the end, people love almonds. And so I say, eat all you want because we're going to make more. 
There you go. Eat all you want because they're on sale and they're going to make more. Thanks so much to Dick Cunningham for sitting down with me for this episode. I really enjoyed hearing his decades of wisdom focused on this business and his continued enthusiasm for the future of almonds. We here at the Almond Journey podcast believe everyone in the almond industry has a story of their own of how they're making things work on their farms or in their jobs. Hearing voices of industry leaders, people like Dick Cunningham, may spark a connection or an idea you can use in your own journey. And that's why we want to feature these stories of innovation, of resilience, and of community here on this podcast. I hope you'll come along for the ride by subscribing to or following this show on your podcast platform of choice. And please pass it along to someone else in the industry so we can all share in this almond journey together. Music.